When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Ted Lasso, and we have another bonus episode in the works on Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days and other films lost in the transition to streaming. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve is off blissfully touring her best memories, but she'll return to our podcast dystopia soon. But as a special treat to my co-host, Keith and Tasha, who did make it out to Sweet Emulsion Studios for this recording, I'm offering you the incredible opportunity to either relive or erase the movie memory of your choice. I'm like the Sylvester McMuggie McBean of the memory game, and you're like the Sneetches going through my memory on and memory off machines. Wow, that is a really tortured way of putting that. Well, that's the words of someone who doesn't want to go to our Frankfurter roasts, or picnics, or parties, or marshmallow toasts. What about you, Keith? I've come to help you. I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work at great speed. Uh, apparently I'm reliving the memory of having Dr. Seuss read to me as a child. Anyway, yes, I'm in. You never get a chance to see your favorite movie again for the first time, so I'd like to see The Umbrellas of Cherbourg for the first time. Great. Done. Step into the memory on machine. Well, how'd it go, Keith? Incredible movie, but I have to say the venue could have been better. The floors were sticky, the seats were broken, and a couple sat behind me and talked the entire time, even though no one else was in the theater. Did I not mention that occasionally the memories are cursed? I'm still working out the kinks of the machine. Okay, uh, I want to try the memory off machine. I would like to unwatch Avatar The Last Airbender, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. I really just don't need any of those memories. Good choice. I, I believe you and I saw that in fake 3D too, didn't we, Tasha? I'm afraid so. I'm sure everyone would want to forget that movie exists. Hey, Tasha, welcome back. You know, M. Night Shyamalan really needed a bounce back after The Happening was such a flop. Yeah, it's crazy that it took him five years to make After Earth. He's usually more prolific than that, but I I guess he really needed a a long break. Feels like something's missing, though. A live-action version of an animated Nickelodeon cartoon adventure series, perhaps? No, that sounds terrible. No, no, something is missing from this burrito. It has no crunch at all. There's no texture to it. You can bite right through it. What a nightmare. (sighs) Well, I'm going to pack up my suitcase full of money and leave town. In the meantime, can someone talk about this week's pairing? 
Uh, sure. With her directorial debut reminiscence, Lisa Joy attempts the kind of ambitious, idea-driven science fiction she and co-creator Jonathan Nolan had done for three seasons on the HBO series Westworld. And like Westworld, Reminiscence takes place in a dystopic future where technology has allowed the most privileged among us to enter into a world of high-tech fantasy. Hugh Jackman stars as the head of a business that offers clients a chance to relive the memory of their choice, but when one of those clients, played by Rebecca Ferguson, comes in hoping to find a misplaced set of keys, it opens up a much more complicated mystery. That uneasy interaction between memories and reality calls to mind a similar business in writer Charlie Kaufman and director Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet stars exes who use the service to erase one another from their memories after their breakup. So this week, we'll once again enter the anxious metaphysical world of Charlie Kaufman with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And next week, we'll step into another magical memory machine with Lisa Joy's Reminiscence. Please join us. Hello, I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. Though Charlie Coffin would eventually go on to direct films like Synecdoche, New York, Anomalisa, and last year's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, he had the distinction, for a decade at least, of being the only screenwriter who tended to get credited over the director. The proof was in the auteurist pudding. Being John Malkovich, human nature, and adaptation all shared a common genius for high concept and high-minded conceits that probed the thornier aspects of human experience, our neediness, our desires, and how our best and worst instincts are often at war with each other. Coffin would inevitably put some version of himself in the narrative too, usually an anxious, scruffy guy with a thin layer of flop sweat attached to his face. He would not make loving his characters an easy task, but at least we could appreciate the full splendor of their neuroses. With Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Coffin finally teamed up with a director in Michel Gondry, who could complement the full force of his vision with some equal tricks of his own. The two had worked together before on the uneven comedy Human Nature, but here Kaufman's ideas unlocked the visual magicianship that had made Gondry one of the great video directors ever, the one who utilized stop motion or old camera tricks to work wonders for the likes of Bjork, Kylie Minogue, and the White Stripes. It wasn't going to be enough for Gondry to be deferential to Kaufman's writing, like Spike Jones had been in his unvarnished work for being John Malkovich in adaptation. Gondry needed to visualize the extremely abstract idea of a man dashing around the corners of his own mind, trying to outrun memories that were erasing and collapsing around him. Let's back up for a second. Eternal Sunshine starts with Joel Barish, a very unimpulsive guy played by Jim Carrey, who takes an impulsive trip to the beaches of Montauk in the middle of winter. Along the way, he meets the genuinely impulsive Clementine, played by Kate Winslet, who has blue-dyed hair and has taken an active interest in him, which, in the classic Kaufman style, unnerves him as much as it excites him. When Clementine asks if she can nap at his place, Joel agrees, but she has to stop back home for a toothbrush. While she's gone, a baffled young man knocks on the window. Can I help you, he wonders incredulously. Who is this guy who seems to know him? And why does he seem so freaked out? Cut to the opening credits. The answers will come later when we discover that Joel and Clementine have actually broken up. And not only have they broken up, but Joel has learned that a company called Lacuna fulfilled Clementine's request to have all memories of Joel erased from her head. 
Already reeling from their breakup, Joel storms into Lacuna's office and winds up paying for the same procedure. He's told to throw everything that reminded him of Clementine into garbage bags. Photos, gifts, clothing, and pages from the scrapbook diary he'd been updating since that first day in Montauk. And then he records a tape detailing all his feelings about the relationship. These are the breadcrumbs that Lacuna needs to ease his suffering. Want to get brain damage? Joel wonders. Technically, the procedure is brain damage, he's told. For a piece of science fiction, the procedure itself is delightfully analog, with an old computer and wires and what looks like a metal pasta strainer attached to Joel's head while he sleeps. It's Kaufman and Gondry's way of focusing the audience's attention on the characters instead. What Joel discovers in his weird state of half-sleep, where he can hear the whisperings of the technicians around him, including one, played by Elijah Wood, who is using his information to pursue Clementine himself, is that he doesn't want these memories erased. He's made a very big mistake, and he rebels by hiding his consciousness from view and taking Clementine with him. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind makes an unexpected but very moving argument for the preciousness of memories, even memories that are painful and whole relationships that seem regrettable. We are, after all, the sum product of our experiences, and not all of those experiences are going to be happy ones. Or maybe those experiences start to change shape and meaning over time, and seem constructive when they might have once been excruciating. Joel and Clementine come out of the Lacuna experience with the impulse to start again, knowing that they likely won't succeed a second time either. They know that the flaws that they found in each other still exist, and they know that the differences they have may be irreconcilable, but the memories they make together will be important no matter what. We'll talk about it after the break. It's all falling apart. I'm erasing you and I'm happy. You did it to me first. I can't believe you did this to me. Clem, can you hear me? By morning, you'll be gone. The perfect ending to this piece of shit story. All right, so uh, so what is your history with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and, and how does it look in the year 2021? I seem to recall the three of us being pretty over the moon for it at the time, but but maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. What do you all think? We were over the moon for it at the time and collectively named it the best film of the aughts at the end of, of that decade the, uh, at, the, at the in our AV Club uh, poll. And I think it was it was not a movie that anybody wasn't on board with with uh, giving that, that honor, or at least ranking pretty high on their list. And, and for me, it still really holds up. I'm, uh, what about you, Tasha? Uh, I don't think it holds up as well as I this is I went back and listened to the the commentary track with Gondry and Kaufman and and they openly talk about how this is a movie that they mean for people to watch several times mm-hmm. uh, because it plays so differently the second, third, fourth time you watch it when you understand the tricks and, and you've unraveled the narrative. That first experience, I mean, it's like the first experience of watching, oh, I don't know, to, to pick a random movie out of a hat being John Malkovich or <laughs> Schenectady, New York. You know, that feeling of I have no idea what's going to happen here is a often a, a pretty precious one to a film critic because we see so many movies, we see the same tropes and the same ideas play out so many times. And, you know, this is just such a an incredibly original vision with such an incredibly uh, unpredictable and original construction. I think it's probably still a fabulous movie, but watching it this time, I think, you know, for the f- maybe fourth time or so, I found a lot of tripping points with it. And it, it mostly comes down to how much I dislike Joel and Clementine, both individually and as characters. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't love it the way I loved it the first time through. 
I don't think that that's a knock on the film. I think that the film's construction and execution is just so, so blisteringly creative and ambitious and, and wild. But in spite of what the director and writer think, I'm not sure that it's a movie that is best the third or fourth time you see it. That is surprising. Mm. I, you know, I, I of course, uh, loved it the first time and uh, I was afraid to say I loved it this, this time as well. But like, I think that note about it being, you know, something that that's worth watching more than once is certainly true. Um, I was very much thrown for a loop by it the first time I saw it and needed a second viewing at the time to really get a feeling for what was going on and, and, and really actually be moved by, you know, the kind of driving sentiment of it. I always like it when a movie like that can make a complicated philosophical argument. I guess that is the Charlie Kaufman touch. I mean, you see it mimicked in something like Inside Out, which is kind of like a Pixar movie that through its complicated conceit is, you know, makes an argument in favor of sadness and the importance of sadness. That's a hard thing to do in a kid's film. So I, so I kind of appreciate all the loops that it kind of goes through to make what is a fairly profound and, and moving point. What got to me this viewing, though, were the side characters. You know, it, all of the drama going on, the, the love triangle, I suppose, between Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo and Kirsten Dunst's characters. I thought that's just a whole nother drama to unpack that's just, it was just fascinating to me, <laughs> you know, just to see all of these, like, and Tom, yeah, did I mention Tom Wilkinson? Did I, or did I, I was going to say, you, you, said, it's, you said Elijah Wood. No, no, so I'm wrong. Not Elijah, Elijah Wood's off as uh, that's fascinating in its own right. Him, him, kind of stealing from Joel to try to stealing Joel's moves and not not uh, to lesser effect to try to win over Clementine. But no, I'm, I guess I'm talking about the love triangle between Tom Wilkinson and Mark Ruffalo and, and Kirsten Dunst, which was full of surprises. And and again, it was just it, you know it's this idea of what harm can come of the fantasy of not having to go through a painful experience of just being able to just take something that is regrettable, that is, that is uh, ended in disappointment and humiliation and just dispose of it. The film to kind of get into what's lost in doing that, uh, you know, in the side characters is, you know, in addition to Joel and Clementine, I thought was really great. It's the emotional equivalent of, of, you know, not touching a hot stove twice Except you, you, if you remove that information, uh, Christian Dunst's character Marriott is gonna, going to keep touching that hot stove over and over again, and getting hurt each each time. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten how involved and distinct and you know moving in their own way that those stories were as well. Because I, I remember as definitely being the Kate Winslet Jim Carrey story, and it's certainly the focus. But but all that stuff happening in, in on the side is is really quite fascinating, and, and I think also plays into the central themes of it. Some neat mirroring there. I, I also like they only have a couple of scenes, but I like David Cross and Jane Adams as a uh, a functional yet terrible couple. <laughs> you know, example of how how these long term relationships can can last and still and and but also be a huge a huge drag. You know, a lot of things are very well thought through here. One point that I made in the keynote here was that this was like one instance where there was a real balance or, or harmony between two very strong visions here, uh, Charlie Kaufman and Michel Gondry. And I was curious to get your thoughts about how, what what kind of identifies the film as, as a product of each of them and, and how those styles mesh. 
you know, I, I'm not sure that this has ever fully come into focus for me before, but seeing I'm thinking of ending things in this movie so close in proximity to each other, I feel like, you know, a Charlie Kaufman movie because it's fundamentally about a sad man who hates it inside his own head. And he literalizes that over and over. Like in Anomalisa, the protagonist sees everybody in the world as looking identical and nobody stands out because that's how he he processes other people. And he hates it and he's miserable. In uh, Adaptation, you've got somebody who's stuck writing a piece that he doesn't know how to write and he doesn't know how to escape and he's miserable. Uh, in Schenectady, you have somebody who is creating a piece of art that he is haunting him and obsessing him and he's miserable. And like here and in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, you have somebody who's miserable and is literally trapped inside his own head, like mm -hmm. literally, physically, tangibly uh, stuck with all of these things that are happening that he's he's either fantasizing about or uh, reliving and, and trying not to lose. And I think listening to the commentary track, too, I just I definitely got the impression of him as just like a very depressed and anxious, incredibly smart man mm -hmm. uh, who is well aware of kind of his his personal neuroses and anxieties. Just this sort of feeling of I can't no matter where I go, I can't escape myself. And uh, I, I think that this movie is, you know, uh, up there with uh, I'm thinking of ending things in terms of literalizing that idea. But I, I think that's just fundamentally his thing is that feeling of being trapped in a world that you hate because that world is you. <laughs> so for me, this that run between being John Malkovich in this film when he is working with directors is kind of the Charlie Kaufman sweet spot. You know, I'll watch every Charlie Kaufman movie he directs at the first possibility, but but I do think after this, and maybe it may just be this detail that sets it apart, but the scripts kind of lose their ability to find even a, a shred of hopefulness. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, watch watch the adaptation and and this and being John Malkovich, probably maybe that one the least of of, of those three. Uh, there's at least like an idea that you. You you can get to the other side of, of this sort of solipsism that that his is his you know returning you know his his most strongly recurring theme uh you know I will will these kids make it at, after the end of the movie it's an unanswered question but it's not necessarily no I mean I don't I don't think they closed off that possibility you know after, after that I feel like there is much less of that in fact it may just disappear in entirely I think. Especially like um, Jones's films, I do think this is the best of them. I think I think Gondry is not just counterbalancing. I like Jones's kind of the the flatness he he brings to those films. I think it's really kind of a good way to frame those really wild concepts. Uh, I think Gondry is giving a little something extra here. He's bringing he's he's getting a lot of uh, Gondryness <laughs> to it, uh, and I think it really works here. I can't believe I left out. Uh being John Malkovich in my in my run of uh, talking about Kaufman films because I mean that that's another movie about literally somebody who hates it so much inside his own head that he escapes into somebody else's head and then that becomes like the driving fantasy and then in the end the the hell on earth for him is you know being stuck in a head that he can't escape I think I would want to make kind of two points at once here just to address what you 
just said, I think the difference with Eternal Sunshine is that Joel, at a certain point, fights for to, to for his own headspace, right? I mean, like he doesn't want and fights to make a connection with another human being. Yeah, too. I mean, like like there's a so there is a point where you know, I mean, he is maybe the type of personality, maybe the the, the Kaufman esque personality who wants to crumple this stuff up and throw it in the trash, right? He he doesn't want to be in his head. He certainly doesn't want a bad relationship to cloud his headspace but then there is a mad scramble to hold on to those things and there's something quite romantic in that uh, idea the other thing i would say too is like think about the impact that kaufman has on gondry i mean gondry kaufman doesn't come by whimsy too easily Uh, gondry is mr whimsy (laughs) so it's like so if you when you take kaufman away you know the, the films that gondry made after eternal sunshine kind of fly off into the ether a little bit too there's something there's something about Kaufman that sort of anchors Gondry to an extent and then there's a part of Gondry that that makes Kaufman's script sort of take flight and so it's a really nice alchemy between these two for this movie and for this movie alone because I I felt like Gondry didn't really assert himself terribly much in human nature which just is kind of an odd mixed bag of a, of a film but like this is a strong film that kind of gets allows Gondry to, to work a little bit of magic with with a camera to be able to, to really think about like what Joel's headspace might look like and to be able to kind of do pretty old-fashioned techniques you know of like of you know shrinking him and down to the child size at one point i mean it's not a deliberately kind of unspecial special effect but it works really really well for the film and it feels like kind of the the sort of thing that that gondry would do for one of his music videos oh absolutely yeah it's all forced perspective there's a little making of thing on on the blu-ray that that it shows uh so gondry himself like walking behind the table and and, and quote-unquote shrinking yeah I mean, gondry i like the films he made after this but not nearly as much like the science of sleep is just pure whimsy and it, it gets old but it's kind of a delightful while, while it lasts and be kind of rewind I, I like that movie i think there's there's fun yeah, stuff in that. yeah green hornet i really did not see a lot of gondry in that movie at all yeah and you know blind taste test i wouldn't know those but gondry film. And i kind of lose track of him after that I don't, have you seen any of the films he put out this in the last decade or so i don't think that i have i don't know if any of them really had a very strong rep or obviously i would have <laughs> yeah uh, or a very wide release no 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 they didn't but if you, you know i don't think there's been a better music video director i mean spike jones would be kind of his competition on that mm-hmm. front but um but there's a real magic to you know the st- you know something stuff he did for Bjork. All those videos were incredible, and and uh, and I, I think that Kylie Minogue video coming to my world is like one of my favorite videos ever. And that's just all just a camera trick where she's just kind of going around in a circle, and there all these things start to repeat. It's just like how did how do you do that? Like how do you orchestrate something that that fluid and and beautiful? And uh, it, it's it's nice to see that kind of attention brought to this film and it just gives it a lightness i mean i think that's what you, that's what you do you are missing from those kaufman directed films is is the impulse to see the, the comedy and i mean he, he's good with the comedy but to see a different there's, kind there's of, great gags in them but, but yeah no like anomalisa is very funny but it's like but there is a heaviness to them a fundamental heaviness to them mm-hmm. that gondry and jones you know by their nature won't allow like you, you can't neither one of those directors is really capable of making a movie that's completely heavy it's got to they've got to have something a little bit 
a gentleness of touch here. I think that that is a big part of what makes Eternal Sunshine uh, work. I mean, in part, Anomalisa is just a film about depression. Uh, you know, the unvariedness and and weight and misery of depression. And I'm thinking of ending things as kind of fundamentally about self-hatred and suicide. And you compare that with, you know, something like this or with Gondry's other films in general. And you just like Gondry's films are so sentimental. There's not just that sense of whimsy. There's that sense of uh, you look at something like Be Kind Rewind. And it's just like it's the latest piece of fluff imaginable. But it has a real faith in human nature that I I just don't think is part of uh, Charlie Kaufman's toolkit. And the idea of having the self-hating, overthinking, depressive man and the uh, like the airy dream whimsy man coming together for this film is just it's kind of astounding to me, honestly, that they work together, that their work meshes together. I, I remember interview. This is all extra textual. I, I, I remember interviewing the two of them for this movie when they came to Chicago. And I mean, it is just their dynamic together was so strange, as you might expect. I mean, because because Coffin is what like one of his characters you know come to life and uh and, and gondry is every bit is every bit is kind of odd and jokey and and you know and kind of silly as you might expect and it's just it, it, it works though the two of them really seem to to love working together and to love what they brought out from each other i think it's interesting that you get that on the commentary track I kept reading Kaufman as just kind of disapproving, like disapproving <laughs> of of almost everything Gondry said and or did. Mm -hmm. the, the commentary track literally starts with uh, the shot where Jim Carrey is getting out of bed and Gondry says, oh, here's Jim getting out of bed. And Kaufman laughs at him. And he's like, is that what we're going to do for the whole commentary? Like, uh, are we just going to describe it? And Gondry's like, well, let's, let's just do a version of the commentary for the blind. Let's just describe everything happening on screen. And just that, that immediate dynamic of disapproval and joking about it uh, back and forth. It's like, it made me a little uncomfortable. I felt like I, this was not a place where I, I would have wanted to be in the room. I kind of wish that commentary was more insightful. Mm. They get into a few things that are fun to know, like what you were talking about in terms of uh, really, really old school filmmaking. There's a great sequence where Jim Carrey is like watching himself interact with Tom Wilkinson, talking about Clementine and, and what Clementine did into a tape recorder. And the camera kind of pans back and forth between observing Joel and speaking Joel from different time periods. And Gondry talks about how like just every time the camera moved, Carrie would run around behind the camera, <laughs> change clothes and like sit or stand in the other place. And it goes back and forth a few times that way. And just just knowing that that's what going is going on, that there are no editing tricks. Uh, there's no CGI. There's nothing involved except <laughs> Carrie <laughs> flinging himself backward and throwing on a hat and jacket almost makes the movie more magical to me. It's it's funny just what seeing it down today of how the effects in it are are the types of effects you would see now so heavily CGI'd and the fact that it so is not so you know it makes it makes it all the more kind of charming to watch now. But you know you mentioned Jim Carrey. I mean this is an unusual role for him. Maybe not the person you would expect to be cast as Joel. And of course, and of course, Kate Winslet is in this film. Maybe, maybe somebody you would expect to be cast as someone like Clementine. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, lead characters and the performers. Oh, those are very, very different questions. Uh, let's let's start with Jim Carrey. 
Well, as as a performer, I mean, I really don't care for him. Yeah. Uh, I I think he he has that clown desperate to be liked thing going on that always makes me very uncomfortable. And he just he overacts. Uh, he he overperforms and everything. And I think in this. This may be, I want to say it's his most tolerable performance. <laughs> I, I think that he weaponizes that discomfort, the, the discomfort that makes him be a, a big loud class clown. He weaponizes it and internalizes it here. You can still feel his discomfort. He just expresses it very differently. And it's really startling in this film whenever he kind of reverts to type. Whenever he like gets big and loud and yelly or flaily, the moment where he smears like barbecue sauce across his throat and like throws himself on the ground and and pretends that he's been murdered or Mm -hmm. something like that uh, just particularly stands out for me, both because it's a moment of going back to Jim Carrey over the top mugging and then just as a character beat, like she's angry, she's agitated, she's getting ready to go out. And he's trying to get her attention. He's just being like needy and weird. And she completely blanks him. She completely ignores it. And she she leaves anyway. And he gets up and sits on the couch and starts cleaning off the sauce. And his facial expression in that moment is just so blank and distraught. It's like he's not acting up this big performance of sadness or disappointment or frustration. You just you really see this like naked moment of I don't even exist to her right now. And it it may be the greatest thing that I've ever seen him do. Uh, it's just it's a really it's a, such a startling moment because he's not doing anything. Yeah, I'm too old to have uh, nostalgia for Jim Carrey's like, you know, golden years. I saw all those movies. I, I didn't really love them i, I but I, i've come around a little bit i, I do appreciate uh more what he's doing especially it's like like dumb and dumber i, I kind of get where the bigness is uh appropriate there and i i liked his performance in man on the moon uh, i think it's a good movie uh but this is uh, you know it, to me it, it's in a class by itself i mean it's a much different performance but i also think you don't necessarily see it the same way if you haven't either seen the jim carrey that, that preceded it or at least kind of sense it or, or pick up on what's going on in the, those big moments that you cite, those those flashes of, of the class clown, Jim Carrey. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's not necessarily an, an instinctive bit of casting. And I think it's a, a ultimately a great piece of casting. I think he's, he's fantastic in this movie. I think there is just a little bit of, you know, man bites dog attention that that tends to happen you know when the handful of very serious internal dialed down performances that robin williams uh did or the handful the couple that uh adam sandler's done you know there is a, a certain amount of uh oh my gosh like we can see how much they're acting because they're not acting they're not mm-hmm. overacting and i i think those roles maybe get a little overpraised but they're still fascinating and they're still good and here it's it's the same kind of thing like i no i don't think we would process this differently if we'd never seen jim carrey in any other movie but you know we have it's it's one of those inescapable extra textuals yeah i've been i've been trying to come to terms with this performance from the beginning because i i, I would was not a Jim Carrey fan at all. In fact, uh, the worst afternoon I ever spent in the movies was seeing a double feature of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and My Father the Hero, I think, was the, oh, the one with Gerard Depardieu trying to... Yeah. Really bad. Really, really rough double feature there. And I it, you know, I just never really liked his whole manic shtick. I still don't. It does nothing for me. And, and even, even a role that he got praised wildly for, 
when he played Andy Kaufman, I thought was too much. <laughs> and so seeing him here was, was kind of a shock because, because a lot of that gets dialed down. But one of the things that's kind of effective about the performance is that I think an audience used to this actor being stretchy and, be, you know, being from the mask and, be, you know, being like a, you know, you know, kind of plastic allows us to kind of accept the world that we're thrown into a little bit more because we almost expect him to be in that kind of environment, you know, it, it, you know, and, and you see some of that more classic, I'm putting in air quotes there, Jim Carrey comedy, you know, in the scene where he's, you know, a kid again, where he's, you know, when he's shrunk down to, to kid size, it, you know, and so, and so he's, he's a natural for scenes like that. And then, and then he does, you know, as Tasha said, do such an understated job in other places in the, in the movie. And the scene that she cites is just such a beautiful piece of acting for, again, all the reasons she mentioned, um, because it, it does, you know, showcase his extraordinary physical chops. Not every performer could even pull off the choreography to make that fake throat slashing work, but then, then to also register uh, the emotions of that, that moment. It, you know, it, it works really, really well. But, but Kate Winslet is also in this movie. Uh, she, she is someone we would, that m- most of us would say is one of the really great actors of her generation. But, you know, this, I'm curious to see what you all thought of her as Clementine. I remember thinking it was a revelation that she could play that kind of role uh, when this film first came out. Not that I really doubt it. She had had you know chops to do whatever because she was always great before that. But this was, was a real point of departure from her. I mean, not just you know I'm not even sure she'd played an American before this, but just sort of this very recognizable type of. of person you probably met in your life and either delighted by or horrified by or some combination of the two that's sort of this big person who's who's living through their you know who's putting their personality out there and 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 holding nothing nothing back you know it's not really what we knew her from before and she's she's great in it and and uh your sense has really done to dim that for me having just seen her in you know mayor of east town you know, there's a lot of versatility. I'm here to tell you the shocking news that Kate Winslet is a very versatile and accomplished actress, <laughs> and she's very good in this film. Yeah, agreed. I really dislike this character a lot. I, I dislike both of these characters, and, and we can get into that uh, separately since you asked that as a separate question. But I think it's definitely a mark of her talent that she's able to to play that this role without going to to kind of Jim Carrey heights like this could be a very like flaily shrill over the top role but i think one of the reasons i dislike clementine so much is that i can so tangibly feel all of the anxieties that drive her you know the the neediness and the fear of being disliked and the fear of not being seen and the desire to have people focus on her and pay attention to her and fall over her are yeah all things that i've encountered with real people in my life and they're never pleasant people and it never ends well but you can really feel the depths to this character. You can feel the sadness at her core, like even when she's like bouncing around and, and being loud and silly. Like she's kind of a classic manic pixie dream girl who flies in out of nowhere and uh, takes a, a deep interest in lightening up the life of a, you know, a, a sad and lonely man for no clear reason whatsoever. But at the same time, you, you kind of do see the reasoning. You, you kind of do see who she is just around the corners, around the edges and in the background. And I, I think she does a pretty fascinating job with that. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't preempt your whole. I don't like these characters discussion, but you know, I, I don't wouldn't necessarily want to spend a lot of time with either of these people. But I do want them to be happy. Like I'm, I'm rooting for them to figure out, you know, work through what 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 they're what they need to work through to, if not reunite and get back together uh, as a couple, to at least like have a, a be able to navigate the world better than they can at the, uh, when we find at the beginning of the movie. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I I think that that is very common with Charlie Kaufman's you know, anxiety driven, depression hounded, you know, tortured characters. Um, very few of the, the kind of Kaufman characters in Kaufman films are people you just actively don't think deserve happiness. Uh, I would maybe single out being John Malkovich as, you know, having one of those and he comes to a bad ending in the end. But an awful lot of these people, you kind of want to take them in and comfort them and, mm. and tell them, you know, it could be okay. I just I think that he's very aware that these two are not good for each other, that they exacerbate each other's issues, uh, that Joel's like reflexive judgmentalism and hostility is not good for Clementine, that Clementine's impulsiveness and, and constant need for for change and for noise and for adventure is not good for Joel. I think he recognizes all the ways they're bad for each other. And I, I honestly feel like the ending is much more sour and cynical than it is like hopeful. Ooh. I'm, I don't think that many people necessarily process it oh, that I'm way. I'm excited to get into that thing. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, well, well, let me qu- quickly on Clementine. I do think Winslet brings quite a bit of depth to the character. Maybe depth that isn't even there on the page, because there's a part of Clementine that reminded me so much of Catherine Keener and being John Malkovich to where the character feels like a reflection of Kaufman's terror of, of women, right. Of, of, of them being able to embarrass him or, or intimidate him or humiliate him. And you see that in that first encounter where she's very aggressive with him and playful in a way that makes him kind of more uncomfortable than intrigued. But I think there's, you know, as the film progresses and as we get deeper into the this performance of Winslet's the whole character becomes a lot more well-rounded which is hard because this is not Clement's this is not Clementine's story ultimately this is you know we're following Joel through this movie and uh and so she could be a one-dimensional character and she isn't so uh uh, you know the kudos to Kaufman and and company and Winslet uh, for that you know there's more characters of course than uh Joel and Clementine uh, and there's this tremendous amount of drama happening within the Lacuna team, uh, you know, from Elijah Wood's character, you know, taking up with Clementine to this uh, really surprising love triangle between Kirsten Dunst's character, who's sort of the receptionist, I suppose, at the at Lacuna, and Mark Ruffalo, who's one of the technicians, and Tom Wilkinson, who kind of runs the place. Uh, how, how did how did all that play for you, and how does it figure into the film? I mean, rewatching it at this point with uh, just given how how much everybody's career has expanded, it's just kind of a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. You know, watching uh, Mark Ruffalo like jumping around in his underwear being goofy after kind of where his career has gone is just kind of fascinating. But also, I just I really I, I kind of dislike all of their characters, too, um, <laughs> saving Kirsten Dunces. I mean, you know, Mark Ruffalo is uh, extremely bad at his job. Um <laughs> They're all, you know, thieves who take advantage of people. Elijah Wood's character is uh, just like a, a favor sharking, stalking creep mo. 
I love the performances and I love the writing on all of them so much. The the whole like complicated deal with uh, Elijah Wood's character sneaking information out of the business and then writing a story in his mind about how he and Clementine are like now engaged in some kind of torrid affair, which as we see them together over and over, it's clear that's not true at all as far as she's concerned. I think all of that is fascinating and and insightful and done with like a horrible kind of humor. Uh, but the relationship between Tom Wilkinson and, and Kirsten Dunst's character is for me, one of the emotional hearts of the film, just understanding where she's coming from and what she wants and how she resolved that. And then it was taken away from her. She helped it. She helped it happen. And then what she does as a result, I I think it's just, it's all a, a micro story pressed off to the side, but I think it's all really fascinating. I'd forgotten how, Good and and creepy. Elijah Wood was in this movie. Which, if you look look at him, this is his first thing he does after Lord of the Rings. After this, he does Sin City. So there really is like a a big run to let's to not Frodo. You know, you want you want charming, sweet Frodo. Let's. I'm going to give you exactly the opposite. Of that I I do like the way he's he's. I do like the way they use his size and his like innate boyishness as as to make him just kind of like the the shrimp and the outcast and their little gang of mind wipers or, or whatever. Um, and you do you do buy him as someone who would step beyond beyond the bounds of, of privacy and respect that are some uh, presumably written to the contract of, of Lacuna. You know what it reminded me of uh, Elijah Woods uh, the, that whole subplot was the stretch in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray's character is trying to orchestrate the same date and trying to get it right and it gets worse and worse and mm. worse because his version of that of that date is becoming less and less sincere and so here you know elijah wood is copying all of joel's moves and lines and everything but he just he, it doesn't clementine can well there's, i mean there's a sense of deja vu i think there of course but but i think she could just feel like it's not working there's something just intangibly off about it or tangibly or intangibly off i think that's a really clever part of the movie um you know and then of course that the love triangle again it adds just a whole nother layer to the film that you know you can miss you know i i, I certainly wasn't focused on that the first time i saw it. i mean the first time mm-hmm. i think it was more swimming <laughs> through it and just trying to piece together how it worked and where the timeline was and you know and then and then even the second viewing again was just really focused on that central relationship and kind of making getting all the pieces right but just this little part of it is uh it, you know really enriches the film and Dunst is so good too. I mean, I, I mean, this you know she's she's been so good in everything she's done lately. But I think I'd forgotten how uh, already like fully there she was as as an actor at this point. And, and that's just it's a heartbreaking performance. Yeah, you really feel for her. I mean, to some degree, you feel for Elijah Wood too. Without, I think I think that's an interesting nah, distinction. I, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel for him in his. Uh, his desperation to make something happen that's just that's never going to happen. But I think it's really interesting the difference between kind of disliking Joel and Clementine, but wanting them both to be happy, wanting them both to get what they want and maybe understand that what they want shouldn't be each other, that there are there are other healthier relationships for both of them, uh, you know, more nurturing relationships that'll give them what they need versus 
kind of kind of liking kind of not liking Elijah Wood's character, but definitely not thinking that he should get what he wants. There's no world where it would be good if uh, his plans followed through. Well, it's like, a horrible. It's a horrible violation. Yeah, yeah it's, that, uh, it's, yes. he's completely unethical. I, I think that the the difference between the way Jim Carrey delivers the line about being completely happy for the first time in his life and the way Elijah Wood delivers it when he's trying to to make something happen that isn't happening when he's trying to to mimic joel uh it's just a, a great you know piece of of discrepancy in performance it's it's they're both good line deliveries but like put next to each other it's just the contrast is so good it tells you so much about what's going on with both of them it's really funny but yeah i mean if you're gonna, yeah, I mean, Elijah Wood's character is a bit of a creep here, but the way I, I, I kind of think of it is like he's kind of a, a minor leaguer who needs to steal signs in order to play in the majors. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of like that um, uh, kind of thing. I mean, and then the, you know, I mean, of course, you know, to, to get back to the, the 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 love triangle, like Kirsten Dunst makes this decision to release, you know, all of this information to, to kind of upend the business. What what did you think of that decision? I, I love it. I I think that she realizes what the theme of the movie is, I think, effectively, is if you if you don't understand your mistakes, if you don't fess up to your mistakes, if you don't internalize and think about them, you're going to repeat them. And I think that this movie is fundamentally saying that, you know, people who don't take responsibility for the ways that they treat themselves and each other are just not going to be not ever going to be happy. And maybe they're never going to know why. I think that this is a fundamentally a movie about how you have to learn from your own mistakes and you have to accept them. And I think that where Joel and Clementine kind of end is they both tried to dodge that in their own way and ended up where they are. And they're just about to, to repeat their same mistakes. And the only sense of salvation in that is that they've both listened to these tapes. They both have a little more sense of what they're getting into. So history isn't just absolutely destined to repeat itself uh i i think that when kirsten dunst's character sends all of those letters and tapes to everybody and explains what happened you know she's doing it selflessly i think she she's come to understand like looking at her own life that it doesn't help you know to to cut memories out of your life it actually makes things worse and she's thinking about all of the people who are just guaranteed to continue making making the same mistakes over and over she's just trying to help i guess one thing i would add to it and this speaks to the ending of the film the philosophy of the film is that i I think that it's not just mistakes but experience that we have to experience every part of life even the bad stuff you know and it's not necessarily you will learn from the bad stuff you will learn from the the painful mistakes which which you will i mean if you have a a relationship that doesn't work out or or you know if you know and, and you kind of have to wrestle with decisions that you made or, or actions that you made that that you regret i mean that's great i mean that's that's part of gr- growing up but but just generally we should not want for ourselves only happy experiences that there's something about other that there are other emotions that can and, and should color bring color to our lives and, and range to our emotional understanding of of the world here i think yeah uh i agree with you and inside out agrees with you i wonder i i don't feel like joel though is is there i don't think that he's understanding uh what the bad times meant to him and savoring them and and 
wanting to learn from them when he tries to hang onto those memories. Mm. I think he's realizing that he's throwing out the good with the bad, you know, that in a, a kind of a fit of spitefulness and hurt, uh, he made the decision to throw out even the parts of the relationship that he loved. Mm. And he wants to hang on to them for, I think, more sentimental reasons than to learn from them or to change his life or, you know, to help him with Clementine in the future. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe there, maybe there isn't as much cynicism as I, I, as I feel in the idea of the two of them, like looking at where the relationship ended up and knowing the choices they made and still consciously trying to start again. Mm-hmm. I just, because of the way those two characters are drawn, because of their huge and various dysfunctions and how incredibly cruel they are to each other in the relationship. I, I feel like they're still doomed and I don't feel like there's a happy ending in them trying again. I, I feel like they're both needy, needy people mm-hmm. and they feel sort of a compulsion to, I, I just, I don't think it's going to work out for them. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but I, I do, I think the alternative where they, where they come to that, if they came to that conclusion, if they said, Oh gosh, we listened to these tapes and uh, yeah, it doesn't really look like we're going to get along that well. Uh, that's the, that's the worst ending to me. I, th- yeah. I do like. The, I think you know. And there's something. You know, if, if if you're talking about, we need the we need these experiences to happen to to so we can learn from them. Maybe that's what the movie hopes they're going to be able to do. Uh, you know that that if they can hear them the way they talk about each other and and they can you know I mean how often do you get you know such an unvarnished reflection of what another person feels about you, you? and if you can kind of like internalize that in, in the right way maybe you can correct those mistakes and take responsibility for behaving poorly in a relationship and, and maybe doing better this time i don't know I, I like it i like the ending the way it is i think it's a question mark and you can't draw any conclusions right. from it. i think that, that's the appropriate ending for this film yeah i think you're right i mean i certainly don't think i think you're right and if if they just were like oh my gosh like listen to all this stuff we were terrible goodbye forever you're right that would be a terrible ending <laughs> I'm definitely not saying it's the wrong ending. I'm just saying it's it's a very sad ending. I, I don't see any romanticism and I don't see a lot of hope in this ending. I see a very intellectualized Charlie Kaufman-esque ending that says, we just keep getting stuck in our own heads and we don't like it there, but maybe there's no escape. I'm not inherently against that message. I, I like a good downer film ending. I, I like cynicism on screen uh, because it's rare, because it's rare and it's it's daring and it's textured and it's interesting. And sometimes it's realistic. I feel like this ending may be a realistic ending uh, in spite of all of the fantasy elements. Uh, and I absolutely respect it. It just doesn't make me happy. It it doesn't it doesn't make me feel that Gondry sense of uh, sentimental whimsy that like a Be Kind Rewind does, and that's fine. I'll take this movie over Be Kind Rewind any day of the week. Uh, yes, uh, mo- most definitely. Well, we're gonna have lots more to talk about it with Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, particularly the theme of memory, which uh, comes up in a big way in Reminiscence uh, our, our next week. Uh, oh, yeah, but, you're right. I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that. Really? really that's, a, that's a hidden thing. You didn't pick up yeah. on it in our, in our little sneeches? Uh, you picked up uh, on it when we talked about it last week, Keith, but we decided to erase your memory. Oh, whoa. We didn't think it was doing you any good. This is huge. Okay, well. Well, what I'm trying to later. say is that we'll be right back with feedback. <laughs>
Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. First up is a voicemail from a very familiar listener named Bob, whose viewing of Annette suggested another movie that paired well with it. Hey, Next Picture Show, this is Bob. While listening to your great discussion of Annette, I thought of a connection I hadn't noticed before uh, to another rock opera with an eponymous hero, that being Tommy. Tommy, like Annette, is the son of a parent culpable in the death of his other parent. And while Annette has the voice of her dead mother, Tommy grows to have the face of his dead father, which in both cases is a tormenting reminder to the surviving parent. Tommy, like Annette, becomes a big sensation, culminating in a big out-of-control show that demonstrates both the power and limitations of punishment, forgiveness, and catharsis. Also, both works have a lot of brilliant moments, but can get a little wearying and off-putting as they go along when seen as a film. There are enormous differences, of course, especially the quest to cure Tommy, and how it shows that Anne Margaret, and even the ape-like Oliver Reed, for all their flaws, are much better parents than Adam Driver's character. But I still find the parallels so clear in retrospect that I'm amazed I didn't see them earlier, which is probably a tribute to how dynamically Sparks launches Annette in the beginning. Which, by the way, reminds me that Sparks is the name of a song and recurring theme in Tommy. Love the podcast. Bye. Well, that's a very good voicemail from Bob, uh, I think. And I, and I know that Tommy was something... We I, we surely discussed that one, right? I think as a pot- potential pairing for the, for with uh, Annette, or did we not? I can't remember. I've actually never seen the film me version neither. of Tommy. I, I've listened oh, wow. to the really? album plenty of times, but I've never... I've never seen the film version. Wow, we never find a situation where I've seen a movie that you guys haven't. That's that's looks bizarre. Like, looks like we're there. I guess so. Uh, it's been it's been long enough that uh, certainly these parallels would not have have specifically stood out to me. But uh, yeah, I, this I think this this Bob guy. I like the way this snub <laughs> thinks. Uh, he he sounds pretty smart and on the ball. Like maybe he knows a lot about film. Um, he also sounds attractive and like he's a good kisser. <laughs> Very intuitive with the, with this so, uh, with this yeah. voice now. We, we usually we don't usually get that kind of response from Tasha from uh from uh feedback, but here it is. Yeah, I had heard uh, T- Tommy did seem like you know when you w- ran down that list of kind of unconventional musicals that would pair well with Annette, that would be that was one that that would would have been on that list, and I think maybe uh, had I seen it maybe because I think I was the first one to see Annette uh, even though I didn't participate in the podcast had I seen Tommy maybe maybe that maybe I would have said you should do that instead of you should do one from the heart but it sounds like you had a good time with uh, one from the heart so I'm glad you did that the other funny thing too about uh about is that we also missed an opportunity this week to pick another Ken Russell movie that would have gone with reminiscence which is Altered States uh, oh sure the, the, yeah. those, the, that would have paired just fine with reminiscence as well so um uh, ken russell is just getting uh ignored left and right on this podcast <laughs> we gotta make it a point to do a russell film at some point then right doing the devils sure we, there's doing. gonna be something that's gonna pair with the devils and maybe we'll do that just before we move off uh, Tommy and Annette, even having seen Tommy, I'm not sure that I would have picked up on that parallel because the focus on Tommy feels like it's so much on Tommy as opposed to being on on Anne Margaret. The, the focus just seems so, so different in terms of whose story it fundamentally is, because even though Annette's name is the title, even though so much of the, the action centers around her, she moves the plot forward, she brings it to a, a conclusion. And the end is is just kind of about her and how she takes things and how she's changed. Like, even so, it, it feels more like it's Adam Driver's story. It feels like he's the one that goes through the biggest arc. 
So I think it's a really interesting observation, but I, I think even if I were more familiar with uh, Tommy, the movie, than I was, uh, I'm not sure that I would have drawn that uh, that connection. Okay. Well, thanks very much uh, to Bob for, for that voicemail. We have one other piece of feedback this week about The Green Knight. Uh, listener Spencer weighs in on the ending, which he understands in a different way uh, than we did. Those of you who haven't seen The Green Knight should probably stop the podcast now and wait for our next episode unless you just want to hear the kind of end of the podcast uh, jibber jabber because uh, this is talking about the very end of the film uh, so it's uh, spoilers ahead uh, tosh you want to read this one sure uh spencer writes while i loved your perspectives on the green knight i was surprised to hear the near universal interpretation of its ending my immediate reaction was that the green knight did indeed chop off gawain's head in a completion of the game the game being the continued pursuit of man justifying conquest in the name of honor and righteousness. I think of the never-ending list of American wars fought over and over, which have no ends better than their beginnings. On and on it goes. It's an existentially pointless game, and that's a message I took from the film. Now, off with our heads. Yeah, so did we did we get this ending wrong, or maybe maybe the ending is uh, uh, more of a question mark? Like, where, where, what, do you, what do you think of Spencer's perspective on this one? Well, David Lowry actually talked to, I believe it was Joanna Robinson at, uh, at Vanity Fair. She asked him about it and he kind of just came out and said, oh, yeah, no, he, he definitely chops off his head. <laughs> uh, they wrote it that way. They filmed it that way and then decided it just didn't didn't work for the film. They, that wasn't where they wanted to end it. So they decided to leave it more open ended. Mm. And it's a rare case where uh, I, I'm feeling a little Scott Tobias here about the extra textuals. I'm not sure that I wanted to know that about uh, the decision Lowry made to not put in something that he'd written and shot because it, it feels to me like the text is the text. You know, it, it feels to me like that's an interesting thing to hear. But I'm not sure that ultimately it feels like it's the story that the the film feels like it's telling, which I guess is just sort of a little Ouroboros of intent there, because the the reason the story feels that like that's not the story it's telling is because it isn't because you cut the ending off. Uh, but I think it is interesting to to come in and look at it again with Lowry having expressed that that intention that he never intended to follow the poem where, you know, the, the Green Knight just cuts Gawain a little and lets him go uh, for honorably showing up. Like he he always intended for him to die, uh, having achieved his honor by not running away from his death. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you don't want it to be an ambiguous ending, you you, you don't cut the part that makes it unambiguous. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy living with the am ambiguity there. Yeah. Uh, I'm usually happy living with the am ambiguity at the end of movies. Uh, hence uh, my reaction to Eternal Sunshine and you know a lot of other things, I'm sure. Well, I, though I would say, I, is Spencer correct in saying that this game is about the pursuit of man justifying conquest in the name of honor and righteousness? I didn't feel like conquest was really the goal here. Uh, the, the, the honor, the honor part was was important in, in being chivalrous and you know becoming a better, more worthy person, I guess. But that seems like a good goal that shouldn't end necessarily end with. Uh, one's head getting chopped off yeah but i think the, and uh, to, to go with his reading i think the honor is tied in with also you know taming the land you get all these mm. these images of, of the forest being cleared the whole thing with the old the old gods fleeing or whatever however you want to interpret that that scene with the giants i, I think that's that's definitely you can you can read that into this film pretty easily we had a piece at uh, Polygon. The headline was, The Green Knight doesn't have to discuss race to make its racial message clear. 
And uh, the writer that that put together this piece, uh, Angeline Rodriguez, um, who's a book editor, came to me with it to talk primarily about how Gawain's skin color, how having an Indian man at the round table kind of messes with the dynamics. And she actually gets into some of what Spencer is talking about here in terms of the perceived imperialism of the the round table. Mm. You know, the round table is about all of the lands it's conquered. Think about the scene in Excalibur where all of the knights meet up on the hillside and Arthur asks them, you know, how did it go? And they each like roar with uh, glee about the campaigns they've just finished and and the peoples that they've just brought to their knees and the lords that they've killed or uh, forced to surrender. Like that is sort of the story of of King Arthur and the round table. And you can look at it as a story of bringing a savage land together or, you know, stamping out a bunch of of individual uh, rulers and claiming everything for yourself. Mm. The sequence in Green Knight where Gawain emerges from the forest to a battlefield uh, where, you know, hundreds of corpses are just lying in the open and he meets a thief who says, you know, the, the rumor is that the king slew all these men himself uh, with his own hands. It's like a lot of people have interpreted that uh, in interesting ways, both going back to Arthurian myths, which is where that idea came from, but also just talking about how, you know, King Arthur is inherently uh, a warlike man who, you know, waged conquest on the country and then cut down all the trees and and tamed nature and and brought everything under his control. And in the end, he's old and decrepit and surrounded by old and decrepit knights. But when Gawain wants to impress him, his first act is to cut off the head of an unarmed man uh, who's standing helpless in front of him, you know, not to give him a, a little cut or a little love tap, which, as he says, will be returned in a year's time but to try to murder him. And there's a lot that you can read into that about, you know, unequal war and about uh, imperialism and and shutting down the enemy preemptively, like because you think that they might act against you. There's certainly been a lot written about it, uh, about the imperialism ideas in this movie. All right. Well, I guess this once again proves that uh, The Green Knight is the you know best film to talk about of 2021. Is <laughs> this endlessly fascinating so thank you uh, spencer for your perspective we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net that's it for this episode of the next picture show In our next episode, we'll look at Reminiscence, a science fiction thriller in which memories are explored and investigated rather than erased. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. And follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember that Valentine's Day is a holiday invented by greeting card companies to make people feel like crap. (laughs) 